0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another Sporting Blog podcast. We've had a couple of weeks off, Uh, it's been difficult juggling guests with uh, the amount of holiday plans that people have had, somewhat surprisingly considering various aspects of travel um, being difficult and whatnot, but uh, back we are. And today we have, uh, I guess we could call each other old friends, Um, uh, Clive Russell's with me, um, who I'm going to let do his own intro, but just uh, for a bit of context, Clive and I met probably about 10 or so years ago when I think I emailed him out of the blue, basically uh, trying to get a job. <laughs> um, it was something like that. So, uh, hi, Clive, how's it going?
1: Very well, thank you. I think I was polite in that email and was, um, you know, I, I, to be fair, I think through my whole career, one of the things that I've been, and I hope I'm not opening myself up for a massive uh, collection of emails, but I've always taken the time to reply to anybody who has uh, reached out to me to inquire about a job or, um, you know, a question or something like that. Um, part of that was because traveling so much, you have so much dead time waiting around at airports to, uh, you know, load up or board or waiting for your luggage or otherwise. And I always kind of put little markers on my phone to remind myself to, you know, find that email and reply back because. I know the challenge I had entering the sports industry, um, which was, you know, very different, um, you know, to some of the other places I'd gone to. And, you know, then a number of emails and other things people will have sent out that got, you know, no response, uh, you know, just a dead place. Uh, and I didn't want to be one of those people. So I'm glad that I replied to you. Um, <laughs> you obviously had an interesting um, CV and bits and pieces. So that, you know, kind of helped, uh uh, the approach. And as you said, we started some dialogue, had some conversations and became friends from it. And, you know, sadly we live in different parts of the country and have busy lives and families and things like that dogs. Um, so it doesn't mean we get to meet up very much, but occasionally we'll bump into each other at an event and that's always a pleasant piece. So here we are.
0: Yeah. And that's uh, very cool. It's funny. Actually today on Twitter, I-, I felt the vibe of what you might have been, uh, or what going to say today. And I I put something out on Twitter actually, and I'll probably do the same on LinkedIn later to just say to people, if there's any grads or people leaving school or, or those thinking about working in sport, whatever your situation is, do, do reach out. I mean, especially to me, I, I don't know what I can do directly, but I'm happy to pass on anything I, an advice or introductions or whatever. And I, I feel exactly the same uh, way that you do in that it's, you know especially broadly speaking I think it's difficult for people to know where to start when it comes to working in sport whether it's working at agencies or for rights holders etc so everyone needs a leg up and so I wrote to you Clive when you were uh, in charge of Major League Baseball here in the UK, Europe and I think Australia as well am I right?
1: No it was Europe, Middle East and Africa I didn't um you know, go to the old islands. Um, so no, I was, it was mostly Europe. Um, it then became a little bit of Southern Africa, South Africa. We did a number of things. And then um, there was some stuff in Israel. So it became kind of two regions. Um, and we did start it um, after a couple of years. It should have been sort of Western Europe, South Africa, and Israel. But by the time, you know, I did my 17 years there, um, it had expanded out. and We were doing development work across um, both regions, selling broadcasts, um, across both regions and reasonably, um, uh, had a licensing program, um, in those places. So, um, you know, at the end, I definitely, um, owned the title that I might've had a little bit earlier in terms of some of the regional stuff, but yeah, so I went to work for major league baseball in 19 I always lose a decade in here, 1995. Um, Straight from politics. I don't know how many people will know this, but I used to work for Tony Blair and then for Peter Mandelson for four and a half years after I came back to England. My accent kind of gives away my, um, at least my high school time, um, you know, my schooling time. But I'm English, born here, moved to the States and came back. So I may have been a kind of, you know, ideal candidate at that point when baseball was looking to open up its marketplaces because I both had the heritage and the understanding of. The country and the region, um, but had, you know, been educated and grown up uh, and become a fan of baseball. So, you know, from having no family heritage or, you know, my dad wasn't a baseball fan, my mom wasn't a baseball fan. So, you know, there was no kind of, hey, head down to Little League or why don't you do this. It was really a friendship um, that I developed with a guy named Glenn, um, who kind of introduced me to the sport, both as, you know, watching on TV and he played a little bit. So I'd occasionally go and watch him. And then um, introduced me to the great kind of uh, video game uh, baseball, which captured both my sort of mathematical um, interests as well as my sporting. Um, And, you know, I just became a big fan when I moved back to England, Um, you know, stumbled into politics a bit like I stumbled into baseball, Um, did that for a number of years. And then the baseball opportunity came along just as um, Blair was clear that he was going to go into power. you know i kind of stepped into the the baseball role so that was kind of my path i did that for 17 years um it was a great journey a great experience uh, great growth um both personally and professionally um and then you know it was time for me to kind of you know close that curtain and move on to newer pastures and i went into business with a couple of friends of mine um running a gaming sports marketing um agency uh, and, did that for five or six years until sort of covid hit and now it's trying to figure out what that next chapter is for myself
0: yeah and um there's quite a few people in a similar boat and um i think for any of us that are involved in sports uh, at the rights holder level that does involve broadcast and broadcast that piggybacks off of the the fervor of live events it's a bit of an unknown landscape for all of us going forward um whilst you were working for major league baseball and uh, responsible for the uk and parts of europe and so on what was the what was the driver from from mlb back in the us what did they want to achieve um with regards to baseball um in the uk and europe obviously now and i imagine this is part of your work was we have the London series and I think it's been reasonably successful, but what was the driver for MLB UK? Cause we, we do have the comparison, I guess now with NFL growing here at such a rate was, was the ambition much, much the same. I mean,
1: we, you know, the, there's, there's a great um, challenge and a, a different set of circumstances um, that go on between ourselves and say the NFL basketball is a slightly different um, kettle of fish. But, you know, the NFL essentially has, I know they'll tell you that they, you know, are developing the sport and there's lots of people playing flag football and otherwise, but American football is really not recognized as a any kind of a global game or one that's played, you know, in the streets or otherwise around, um, you know, the world. Um, so, you know, we always had a kind of difficult set of stones to kind of walk across because people saw Major League Baseball as the kind of governing body of baseball around the world. And, of course, you weren't. There's International Baseball Federation. It's now called the International Baseball and Softball Federation because they've come together as one very intelligently, um, who's under the auspices of the IOC and is an Olympic sport. And so, in many ways, you know, they're responsible for the development and growth um, of the sport around the world. It's those federations in the U.K., Baseball, Softball U.K., and the BBF, you know, they're the ones who are responsible for the relationship with Sport England, with the governing body, with, uh, sorry, with the government, with, um, you know, the funding bodies. You know, there's a misnomer that baseball, and I think the NBA in some senses as well, is kind of the governing body of that growth. So it always created a kind of strange um, place for us to sit, and that there was huge amounts of demand for the growth of the game from us and to be led by us because we were the best league with the best coaches with the best players etc and the underlying reality that what we are is a collective of 30 professional um, baseball teams um, and businesses right so the, the the you know the drive from the majority of owners was i need more revenue to pay my players to get the most competitive team to you know win a championship what we call the world series um, and so you had to balance that against the reality that in order to make more revenue, you have to grow that audience, um, and that audience, at some level, uh, is more authentic. Um, you know, more engaged, better. Uh, you know, advocates or uh, converts or you know, uh, uh, you know, preachers for your game. Um, if they 're playing the game and they 're obviously going to understand it more, et cetera if you're actually catching a ball, throwing a ball, you know running the bases, you understand so much more about the sport right. so and I think that there's a kind of authenticity to you know continue to develop that so my my view around it was always that whatever the development piece that we did, whatever the engagement piece we did, it had to revolve around growing the understanding. Um, of both our teams and the players. Um, because otherwise, if all we were doing is growing the small b, if you will, rather than the big b, um, then we could lose those people. I mean, in my early days, you'd go up to people who were playing baseball and softball and they couldn't tell you more than two or three teams. I like to believe by the time we left, um, you know, they could pretty much name all 30 teams. Um, you know, and being a Minnesota Twins fan, I always made sure that the Twins were, uh, you know, high in that uh, push. Um, so, you know, even, you know, when we did a, an academy in Italy, it was all MLB branded and, you know, the silhouette of batter uh, was really pushed and everybody understood that that's what it was. It wasn't uh, an Italian academy or otherwise. It was the Major League Baseball Academy in Italy. Um, you know, when we did a, you know, Sponsored a softball tournament. We made sure that all the teams didn't come in as the, you know, Essex Flames. They came as, you know, today playing as the New York Yankees, the Essex Flames. So, yeah. you know, and, and we really, you know, pushed that, uh, you know, very, very um, readily. And I think we did a pretty successful job of it. But ultimately, everybody needs to remember when it all comes down to this that you have 30 billionaires or you know, high multimillionaires who have bought these teams, want to be competitive on the field. um, And the first piece to doing that is making sure that you drive the revenue through. And, you know, you can have a lot of really lovely youth events and, you know, leagues and national teams that do well, but that money may not necessarily filter down to you. You know, the success of the Dutch national team in the world baseball classic meant that their government gave their federation, Another five million dollars in that funding section not one penny of that went to baseball or major League baseball right so the Dutch game got stronger the growth of the game had more opportunities they're reaching out to more kids in schools you know the quality of their talent improved so you know we had a greater pool to be able to uh, draw from but none of that funding um, ended up in major League baseball's owners' pockets or you know collectively in the commissioner's office to distribute out to those owners at all um, you could argue that your talent may got cheaper because there's more people that you can choose from or your talent may got better um, but those are the kind of investment pieces and those are the kind of um, very long term and non selfish decisions that need to be made to you know grow the game
0: it's um it's an interesting point you make about identification. Um one one thing I think the Premier League has done extremely well and of course with, with vast resources is is use players as a as a sort of flag for each club, as an identifier. Of course you have big brands anyway, but back to your point about a sport being more relatable if you've played it, there's plenty of people in India that don't, you know, get a football and kick it around the street, but they knew who Cristiano Ronaldo was at Manchester United because of the signposting. And it's something that the NFL did well here in the 80s with various players from Joe Montana through to William Fridge perry uh, Walter Payton and others. I mean, it, now you'd be hard-pushed to ask many people in the street if they knew more than five or six really you know, key NFL players. But back in the 80s, you knew a lot because... I think that they put the effort in once, you know, we had shows on channel four and all that sort of stuff as well, but it was about putting up a signpost that people could understand rather than trying to sell the game. And I think, I think that's what you were getting at. And for me, when I first got into baseball, it was more for me about the, the identity of, of the club I started following, which is the Red Sox. Cause that was the first time I'd been to a, a ballpark in the States. And from then, you know, it was the players. It was Varitek and Pedro uh, Martinez, and all other. You know, they they sort of shone out, and they became this sort of mythical thing. And then, then I got into the sport as a whole thereafter. And I think it's something that all sports can learn from. And we're trying to do this in horse racing at the moment. How can you how can you get people around the world to kind of look at something? And I think it's about putting up um, markers for people to understand. So I mean, you mentioned the twins. Um, uh, of interest. When you were here uh, in the UK, sorry, when you were working for MLB in the UK, was it the Yankees and the Red Sox always as the two major brands, or did you find that some of the others made some cut through? And, and if so, how did they go about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about kind of fandom and um, you know, interest in the game, then definitely the um, Yankees Far and away, uh, the strongest. Partly because they've got so many great stories with Joe DiMaggio and other people like that. Um, so there's some some breath to it. The Red Sox, obviously, with that Eng- you know New England connection. Um, you see a bit of um, the Dodgers, um, you know, with that LA piece. Uh, largely, though, um, that was all-star fan um, fans of the team or. You know movie you know wearing stuff, I mean, you know the Philadelphia Phillies suddenly took a big you know big push when um you know the fresh Prince of Bel Air started wearing all this stuff around you know the Chicago White Sox, I can't remember who the people were, but and I don't know whether it was that black and silver follow on from what you know was happening with the Raiders or otherwise, but in terms of fashion, um you know there was a stretch of s- six or seven teams in terms of sort of fandom. Um, It really was a little bit smaller and principally around where could you fly direct from, um, you know, London or the UK um, into cities. Because just like you, most people's introduction at that point was, I'm in America. What's more American than I can do than go (laughs) to a baseball game, whether that was a minor league game and they just picked it up or whether they went to a major league game. Um, But, you know, the, 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 Vast majority of that of that early time understanding was purely around you know Tom Cruise has worn an l a Dodgers hat or you know Prince Harry's gone and thrown out a first pitch at Yankee Stadium or you know whatever the similarity was um, and that's what would drive that that retail sales i mean the interlocking n y the Yankees logo was still you know in the high eighties if not early nineties in terms of a percentage um and honestly we could have run that as a single brand but both um would be foolish to do so but we're also constrained by the collective a collective agreement amongst the 30 clubs not to do so
0: yeah it's super interesting that stuff especially about brand because i think since the nfl's been with sky you see a lot of people walking around in branded kit here whether it's you know not the full kit but caps and scarves and everything else that really was not something you'd see very regularly that might also be to do with you know better forms of e-commerce and everything but i think as much as anything people like to identify themselves with a team i mean if you look on people i, I don't do this and i don't know many people that do but there's a lot of you know twitter biographies of people uh, uh, people in the uk who you know will say i'm a diehard liverpool fan and then they will sort of say patriots or Packers or something. People seem to have attached themselves to these brands and then they buy the kit and then I guess they feel like they're, as you say, the fandom thing, they're part of it. Um, i do not sure baseball's got there yet, but it's probably just because it's just not on <laughs> as often and certainly not on um, at a time when most people are, are watching. I one mean, thing my, that oh, I sorry. wanted to, sorry, go on.
1: I was just going to say, one of the things that I think has massively changed that and revolutionized that is the ability internationally, in particular, um, you can do it in the United States, depending on where you live. But um, these kind of seasonal passes—I don't know if it's called, you know, MLB's season pass or the yeah. NFL or whatever it is. Where, as a, you know, I mean, I've given away my twinsdom when I moved to the states. I Obviously, moved to Minnesota because I'm a Vikings fan as well. Um, but the fact is, is that I can sign up and watch every Vikings game live, you know, on a stream legally for whatever it is, $100, um, you know, 80 pounds a year, and watch all those Vikings games I want. Um, I can watch them on delay if I can't watch them live, although the timing for NFL games works a lot better. But, in for you know, as a Twins fan, I can get up in the morning. The game's been done for, let's say, three, depending on where it is, East Coast, three or four hours. And I can watch either the whole game, a condensed game, the four or five highlights. You know, if we've been shut out six-nothing or we've um, – You know, nearly thrown a no-hitter. You know, you can choose how is how much you want to consume, and so my ability to choose a team and follow that team, and therefore buy into the merchandise, do all those other things is so much greater than before when, you know, it would be the Channel Four game of the week, and we're going to put on the the two teams and the other. Well, at the time it wasn't thirty-two, but you know, the other. 2018s, you may not see. And if you're a Cleveland Browns fan or want to be a Cleveland Browns fan, both because they were as bad as they were, but equally um because every nobody saw them as kind of a you know sexy team, if you will. Uh, they never got on air. And yeah. so now you can choose to look for your you know Darby County equivalent or your you know league two. Who's my league two team? I see a lot of people on sites kind of saying hey i'm a fan of this and that who would be my most appropriate team or you know whatever it is i don't know how they think that's gonna (laughs) kind of translate itself through except for you know the bigger bigger teams you know i'm i support manchester united liverpool therefore i need to support the yankees or the red sox but yeah um that to me has revolutionized the ability to go beyond and therefore, for people like you and I who have an eye or look out for that stuff or are monitoring that stuff, when we're seeing a Cleveland Browns or a, um, you know a, a Cleveland Indians hat, although the Indians because of the movies may be the bad example, Cincinnati Reds, let's just say, um, you know, when we see those now. There's a heck of a lot more chance that those are authentic people who know about, have followed, been interested in, gone to a game of, or otherwise than even five years ago, definitely 10 years ago, when most people, you know, if I saw someone in a, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates hat, I'd go up and say to them, hey, are you a Pirates fan? And they'd look at me like, um, who's the weirdo talking to me, right? <laughs> or, hey, you know, with a Yankees hat on, I'd go up and go, did you see Jeter's play last night? And they'd kind of go, w- what are you talking about? Yeah. Now that's still going to happen a lot for New York Yankees because of the ubiquitousness of that logo and people who are buying it. But if you walked up to a Pittsburgh Pirate person now, um, you know, likely they've be either been to Pittsburgh or, you know, uh, or much more likely, I should say, there's still people who just walk into a shop and they like the black and gold of Pittsburgh and buy it. But um, it, it, it definitely has uh, diversified massively because people are able to consume that product so much more easily.
0: Yeah, and this is it's a really, um, it's an interesting thread for us to just explore for a second, actually, because, of course, we know at the moment people, especially of a younger demographic, watch what they want to watch and are, you know, not particularly keen on watching everything else they don't want to watch. Um, and, you know, the, the way that rights and TV and the rest of it's packaged up in sports different is different sport to sport. I mean, you are, amongst other things, a, a passionate Liverpool fan that travels around the place to watch them all over uh, the UK and all over Europe when they're in it. Um, do, you, do you think that if you were given the option to just have Liverpool TV but you could watch all the games as and when you wanted, as you just described, would you be one of those or would you, you know, stick to your Sky subscription so you could watch everything else as well?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm I'm obviously a hybrid because, as you said, I have a season ticket uh, both home and away. You know, I go to all the European um, games. Um, you know, travel to Qatar for our whatever you want to call it World Cup, World Championship, whatever silly name FIFA wants to come up. Um, so I consume a lot um, of Liverpool and not necessarily have time for others. Yeah. Um, so. In that sense, if I can't make a game, whether I have a family commitment or a work commitment or, you know, there's someone who's, you know, traveling over desperate to go to a game. And so I, you know, offer up my tickets, um, you know, friends, family or otherwise, because I'm, uh, you know, I know they're changing all the rules, but I, um, you know, I I have a season ticket in the group. So we share out the tickets for when people want to go. Then I would want to just consume Liverpool games uh, as a priority. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't, I'm not interested in compelling, you know, drama, compelling sport, compelling uh, storylines. So, you know, if Man City are playing and they, you know, if they don't win, we win the title. Well, we're all watching, aren't we? And seeing that Chelsea goal and knowing that that secured us, the title is, you know, is was fantastic. Um, you know, we've, we've all sat in this COVID time where... You know I actually had tickets to the first game that got canceled, the everton uh, League game away, um, you know, and not being able to get my train ticket refunded or all the rest of it, uh, you know still a, a crawl in the back of my uh, throat from what they did with that. But um, you know, we've had a period where we've had to watch our first title in thirty years from afar. It's been a really strange, kind of you know bitter, difficult. Um, you know, pill to swallow because you know I was there in Madrid. I was there in Qatar. You know, I was there for 15 games of the, maybe even 20 games of the season to um, you know the, the lockdown, um, and then to not be able to watch us clinch that title. And you know, it's not just watching on the pitch, right? It's not just seeing this thing happen and celebrating. It's actually the kind of collective path with your friends. Yeah. So. You know, I don't know if you know the brand. Not being a Liverpool fan, but there's a a brand um, of clothing called Love Follow Conquer, which a friend of mine, or I should say, has become a friend, um, started a number of years ago, and it's kind of, I mean, it's all obviously LFC based, um, but it's kind of fun, interesting pieces around players' names. So, you know, they've they put out an Andy Robertson shirt called the Flying Scotsman, and things like that. Obviously, with that kind of a design, just really interesting stuff. So for me, rather than just you know throwing the club badge on and wearing another shirt that's the kind of stuff i wear when i go to games and things and they come out with great shirts for when we won the uh you know the world cup the championship whatever you call it with premier league the same thing um and you know because of my relationship i send out or have sent out to all of my kind of close friends who travel with me and go to games one of these shirts and they are nice enough to put a personalized note in that talks about the journey, right? So yeah, winning cool. the title is a great thing. And being part of it, um, you know, is fantastic, but it's about that collective sharing, you know, time together. Luckily, I should say luckily, because he didn't really have a choice in some ways and he'd have been sleeping in the garden underneath the trampoline, but my son became a Liverpool fan. Um, Now, as a season ticket holder, you know, travels um, when dad pays um, to all these games. And, you know, you cannot describe um, and, you know, you can't, uh, you know, explain to people um, other than unless they've shared it or, you know, they observe it and hopefully can pick up on it. But that amazing moment when, you know, Alexander Arnold crosses the ball you know, Divock Origi puts it in the back of the net and suddenly we're beating Barcelona. Uh, You know, that's just, you know, we were all sitting in the pub before the game, you know, that the travel up, the talk, that all those kind of things, that kind of collective piece is what makes sport and what makes sport great. Um, And I think, you know, for anybody who's been to a baseball game, uh, that's why it can be such a great sport, because you have the time to have the conversation, to share the experience, to you know, talk through things very different than football, which is that kind of 45 minutes of angst. And then, you know, other than celebrating goals, you talk at halftime and then you talk on the way home. Um, But I send, you know, one of these shirts off to every one of those guys with a note that these guys put in talking about that collective, you know, the journey, why it's better because they did it with me, you know, you'll never walk alone type of piece. Um, and, and, And to me, that's what sport's about. And so, you know, yes as a person who's worked in sport, who loves, you know, a, a ton of sports, um, you know, the storyline, um, as long as it has nothing to do with Manchester United or, you know, I have to be careful, you know, cause I worked for them for 17 years or partly from the New York Yankees, you know, two of my most hated teams, the Dallas Cowboys, uh, you know, so, as long as the storyline isn't anything glorious about them, um, then, you know, I have some interest, but. You know, I will, we'll do the old Lino Messi stoke on a cold Tuesday night. Um, you know, I don't really have a lot of interest in a game in April between, um, I'm trying to think who finished kind of mid table, but, um, you know, a Newcastle and an Everton um, when there's nothing to play for and no real storylines and whether they, you know, who wins or loses isn't going to make any difference to, you know, relegation or, you know, right. and, rec- and set or similar. But, you know, did I want to watch the battle, um, you know, to see who would go down? Of course, because it's compelling TV, it's compelling storylines, it's, you know, the, the agony, but when you don't have, you know, 20,000 people in the stadium, and you've got piped in music and things like that, it sure is a different proposition.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I'm also a big advocate of the the storytelling side of of sport, and I believe that uh, one of the reasons I kind of fell for baseball was the mythology of the whole thing. And I believe that that's very similar to cricket. You know, there's it's a game of stories and uh, it's a game of breaking records and setting records and feats that have never been done before or feats that haven't been done for 50 years and all those things that we don't really see so much of in football. But, you know, football stories, I believe, are more about the fan and the and the collective will. But I think one thing that you brought up there about what happens at the game, but also the importance of mid-table matches might be what holds baseball back for some people. You know, with 162 normally uh, regular season games, I think, you know, by game 50 or game 51 or 52, I do think some people are looking around thinking, how important is this and is this a big game when you've got so much of it? And that's a hard one to get across to people in the UK often, that if it's on every night and they're playing all the time, but really it's all about the playoffs. Uh, how, do you, how do you make those, those sort of mid, mid-season games sort of fan appealing apart from if you're going to the ballpark, grabbing a hot dog, beer and chatting with your friends. But for a TV experience, I wouldn't say does anyone care because everyone cares, but it's almost like with horse racing, there's so many horse races every day. You look at the result and then you just move on. Mm. Um, and I believe that when, as you described, being a home and away fan, And I have a season ticket too at Spurs and I'd make the long trek up from the other side of the country to go. And, you know, every game is kind of important because of that. Um, I think if I was just watching casually on TV, any other game, unless there's really something riding on it, or there's a big back piece in the storytelling, I'm not that fussed, but I don't think, I know, I don't think I personally would go down the route of subscribing only to a sort of Spurs fan pass. Um, Although at times it would be, you know, a lot cheaper, I imagine, than the season ticket. Um, but it's something that all sports, are thinking I think, are going to have to look at because if you can have a, a, a $10 pass for three weeks and everyone in the world can pay that to watch, I think, you, you know, you might find a lot of people watching games um, who may not have done it before. Right, um,
1: so you have signed up for that pass, haven't you, by being a season ticket holder and making
0: that. Yeah, so yeah, really, I, right. Awake.
1: Whether you can have enough points, I think Spurs run a point system. You know whether you can get access to certain games or otherwise. Um, and and then you know there's a level of of family and time commitment um, that you know makes you want that um, or you, sorry makes you value that piece. Um, you know on any given day, um, you know in the in the road, if it's your mom's birthday, you probably miss Spurs against Bournemouth. Um, But if it's your mum's birthday and it's Spurs Against Arsenal, you might ask if you can
0: (laughs) be Sunday. That's a conversation. So one of the things I sent you actually in the just as an email before we started all this was, was one of the questions about in the streaming age. Has and I'm specifically referring actually in my head to NFL more than football here, but it's much the same. I think, do you think in like the, the new streaming age, uh, and this is, you know, from a business point of view too, which is important on the sponsorship piece, where does where do sports sit in terms of pure entertainment, in terms of, you know, the Sunday night ritual, uh, whether it's NFL is much bigger for, uh, than, than the kind of Sunday, I mean, the Sunday game here is big, I still go into the pub at four o'clock on a Sunday and it's not normally a small game. But where do you think that sits in the next five five years plus, When you think of netflix amazon and all the rest of it because if you're netflix amazon you want one of these on every night of the week right not just on a sunday
1: yeah i mean look there are uh, you know quite a few people and quite a few friends of mine who are sitting in dark rooms going through all of this stuff right now um you know coming out of for still still coming out of that COVID piece where You know, your revenue streams, you kind of knew what you were going to have in terms of fans coming in the stands, how much merchandise, what your food sales was going to be like, you know, how much your corporate tickets were going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly they, have you know, a huge dent in that revenue stream. Um, And if you're not a, uh, you know, a nation state team like PSG or Man City, um, you know, those revenue streams are enormously important to getting that done. But the other thing that we have to remember, and I I work um, on a project now uh, with a company called Socios, which is trying to bring more opportunities to fans around the world, is that, you know, Anfield, I know they're looking to expand again, but we're not, probably not going to see Anfield bigger than 60,000 people. Well, if you look at the numbers, um, you know, and you believe the stuff that comes out, we're talking about, you know, nearly a billion fans around the world. Um, who all want to watch on Saturday uh, at three o'clock if we can use that uh, time uh, and have no chance of ever being there um, one because tickets are scarce but two because you know their average salary is you know three three dollars a week or five dollars a week um, so the idea that they would even buy a plane ticket get a passport travel there so these clubs whether, um, you know, you're talking about me or you who have the privilege, um, both economically and, um, you know, place of living wise, uh, can go to as many games or reasonably as many games as, as we can. These guys never, ever, ever, unless they win a competition from Standard and Chartered or, you know, AXA, um, will ever get to White Hart Lane or yeah. Tottenham you know, or to Anfield. Not, not a chance in heck.
0: Well, this is one of the big question that's been asked a few times. And I remember doing a, uh, an interview with someone about this for this blog when it was only written three or four years ago, was asking what's the, what's the monetary, and I, this is a fairly cynical view, but what's the monetary value of FC Barcelona or Madrid having 50 million Facebook likes when 49.9 million of those people can't afford to do anything? Uh, in terms of interaction with the club, of course, they're advocates and we know all about that sort of stuff. And I wonder whether in the streaming age, uh, if pricing is done properly and local rights are dealt with, whether those people suddenly can watch all the time, not just watch highlights and maybe help the clubs out revenue wise, as well as being super fans. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the question is going to be, what's the delivery of that? And how are those people able to um, uh, pay for it? Um, because that answers the question of how the clubs can monetize it. So if you are talking yeah. about a, you know, ubiquitous mobile phone now, where you can get all this stuff down, and you've got unlimited data streams, and or you know, reasonable data packages, etc., that guy sitting in a township in South Africa or in a, a Flavella in in, you know, outside Rio or, you know, in a dirt road in somewhere in the Philippines, um, and but they've got 4G, 5G access and can watch highlights or can watch a full game or otherwise, you know, absolutely. Are they going to have to get pricing right for those people and make sure that's geo-targeted so that, you know, the Japanese consumer who will pay for one game, what the Filipino consumer or some of the Filipino consumers, you know, couldn't, you know pay for an entire season um then there's huge opportunity for these guys because you know what if you're ticking over a you know a dollar a week from 800 million people that's not a bad deal
0: yeah exactly and you know there a suggestion has been made well mainly by me in the past that places like that um who who generally have very strong consumer markets within their own boundaries places like the philippines uh indonesia thailand etc you know i i don 't know why someone wouldn 't do a deal with either the the government or the biggest state TV channel whereby they pay the rights package to a you know the Premier League for example and then allow everyone in the country to watch the stuff and then make the money back from the advertisers i mean it's, it would be a no brainer for me if the economics worked on it because really you know and truly we uh, from the revenue point of view, we also need as many people watching as possible to keep the the value of the the product, if you like. You know, the Premier League, I guess, is seen as the the biggest in terms of its sort of presence and the amount of money it has. Um, Whether it's the best quality or not, I don't know. Um, Maybe it is at the moment, I don't know. Maybe Germany's a bit better, but um, how long that can go on purely remains on how much money the clubs have to spend, right? It's a bit like you were saying earlier about the MLB teams. It's all really about how to put more money in their pocket so they can keep maintaining their status.
1: You know, I mean, these are the golden questions that everybody's asking themselves, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, my view is that, um, as we've seen, you know, things like TikTok and other, you know, peer to peer pieces coming, you know, to the fore, um, and, you know, the shorter attention spans, the, um, the drive to, um, you know, have snippets of consumption and comment on them and uh, all the rest of it, that the the broadcast piece will remain strong, but will have to be supplemented um, and um, uh, supported by tons of other pieces in order to keep the engagement at the levels it is, or it's just going to age out. Right. So, you know, people like me, um, maybe a little bit like you will continue to consume in that way. But, you know, my son, who's 21, uh, will be looking at it in a very different way.
0: Well, it's okay. interesting. I mean, I, I, some of the people that work for me in the office um, who are in their early 20s, a similar age to your son, I mean, the, 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 those that live on their own, do not have Sky subscriptions. No. And you know, the discussion about, did you see the, this last night or that, you know, the sort of glazed eyes with, Oh no, but I saw the, the highlights on YouTube or whatever, which is fine. Cause okay. they, all... they're
1: doing that. Then they're not consuming like my son is cause they're on, you know, they've seen the highlights, they've shared it around, they've done whatever else. I mean, the, the, the challenge of course, is the pir- the piracy piece. So yeah. or non-piracy, you know, so my, you know, my sky subscription allows me four or five sky Go, you know, uh extras or whatever you call them, you know, extra subscribers or, you know, uh, you know, pieces that you can watch the content on. So, you know, my son sits, plugs his phone into the TV uh in his university house, and all of his friends get to watch all the Sky content, all the BT content on the Sky Go app. So they don't have to have the Sky subscription. Mm -hmm. Um now I agree with you that as soon as he transitions out of that and goes off the dad you know gravy train the likelihood of him having sky is pretty low and he'll go out to the pub if he wants to watch a specific game or you know he's got a season ticket so he can you know go to the stadium and maybe get enough of that uh content anyway
0: yeah and you know funny enough it might regress to how it was where uh back in the day where We didn't all have the subscriptions and in fact the pub was the place to go on a Sunday and it was a big thing for me when I first started watching football was to go out and watch the games and that helped with building up the Premier League too. You know people used to gather in the pub to watch a game even you know if it was a Liverpool Man U game for example and it was on uh, this evening I would go out and watch it. I wouldn't stay in and watch it because you know the family would be doing whatever else they do or whatever they watch. I would say I mean obviously it's a very happy coincidence that allowed me to go down the pub um but yeah so look I'm just moving away from the from the rights and because you and I could probably talk about this forever because we're kind of in that world slightly um I want to talk about going to the games um and just from your experience and since the last few years you have done an awful lot of uh, travel with the red men and uh seeing them win all of the things that uh, are available to win um how how do you feel like the the venues in in football be it uk and europe compared to sporting venues in the states from a fan point of view i mean uh, it, it's long been pointed at us that our, our venues are substandard when it comes to delivering a true fan experience uh, i'm not really talking about atmosphere but in terms of you know facilities and whatnot how do you think things are now and you know maybe some of the places that you've been to over the last couple of years how do they compare to some of the kind of more famous or salubrious venues in the states
1: Mm. i I mean any anything that's older than five years um is not going to be up to scratch anymore Mm -hmm. um you know let's look at the amazing stadium that i can just about see from my house that you travel to on a regular basis I mean that place is you know the Tottenham Stadium is incredible. You know every seat has a great deal of space, lots of comfort even in the away end. Although there was a little bit like, there was a little bit of issue with traffic um, behind the seats um, in the way end, which surprised me. But otherwise, huge, giant um, concourses. You know lots of time to kind of relax. You know way more food options, drink options, toilet options. Um, you know, it's just, we've just revolutionized. Then you go into the stadium and you've got these giant screens, you've got real clarity, you've got, you know, super high end, um, light systems, you know, which mean the whole thing looks like it's dazzling. Um, you know, and then you go to, and I shouldn't really pick on it, but you know, you go to Everton and you're still stuck behind, you know, in the away section, they still tell you that you've got an obstructive view seat because the stand has giant pylons that hold up the roof yeah um you know so you know we really are talking about this kind of you know move to you know needing to get away now at the same time you go to i mean brighton stadium is probably a little bit older than five years but you know brighton stadium is a lovely nice stadium which holds what twenty-five thousand, all unrestricted views you know it's got a nice court area outside it with uh, a decent number of um Retail venues and food and things options that you can get, you know, enough toilets, etc. But you know, if if teams and and uh, you know organizations aren't doing that, you know they're going to get themselves in a lot of trouble and they're going to lose people because, you know, the women, the children, the you know the older generation aren't going to feel comfortable going into that. I, I mean, just Liverpool. If you go and watch, so on Champions League nights, my tickets become corporate for UEFA, so we get moved to the main stand. And I mean, it literally is a completely different experience. You know, you <laughs> get into the old centenary stand, or it's not now called, uh, you know, the Sir Kenny Dalgalish stand. Um, and, you know, it's still really tight, um, you know, entrances, um, the, you know, the toilets are, you know, there's just not enough of them. There's always queues, um, you know, the stairwells are tight. The, you know, headroom, when you come down, they have to put up stuff on it to show you that, you know, you go up into your seats, you know, your knees are around the guys back in front of you versus going in the main stand where the entire stand can be in the concourses at the same time. And you have space, you know, the four, four entrances to the men's toilets within 10 feet of the gate um, or, or the, you know, entrance to the seats. Means that everybody can go to the toilet at halftime. You know, you're not having to dash out five minutes before halftime to make sure that you can actually get in the queue.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know the the food options. I still think need some work um, here. You know, there's still too much of, you know, dodgy pies and bad fish and chips and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of those teams are selling off the catering to, you know, outside agencies who just kind of run it that way. But uh, you know, if if, if if there's two pieces to it to me, the first is the amazing improvement both for you know high def television and everything else of that lighting system the product the pitch the you know everything that goes on that makes it you know even more cinematic and then the second piece is what's the comfort like getting into the game you know your food options etc because when you're charging me you know eight pounds fifty for fish and chips which i can get on the high street Liverpool at least for you know three pounds 54 pounds and it's not as good why would I go into the stadium 45 minutes early 50 minutes early to have the fishing ships there when I can just do it outside
0: right I mean and that's where the uh that's where Daniel Levy and the the Spurs board have firmly aimed their sights because as you say in a brand new stadium like that there's 10 different food choice options and people are in there two hours before nailing pizzas and fried chicken and everything else that they can't get outside on uh, Tottenham High Road or if you can you probably wouldn't want to risk it but the interesting thing for me though is actually where is where the 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 blurred gray line is between sort of quaint and insufficient because obviously somewhere like Fenway Park Wrigley Field um, Camden Yards you know, people go to those places as, as, you know, the three or two at least of the sort of original ballparks, and they're not really fit for purpose anymore. You know, if you sit out in the the bleachers at Fenway, uh, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable wooden seats out there. Um, you're still paying a lot for your ticket, but of course you're buying into, again, this mythology piece. Um, it's probably not the same when you're trying to get into Selhurst Park and the toilet's flooded beneath your feet, etc um because i went to yankee stadium a few years ago the new one and yeah like it's this like sparkling cathedral to to all things gargantuan Mm -hmm. um but the atmosphere is pretty shit to tell you the truth um
1: well i mean you know they say that about um some you know some of the bigger stadiums and things you know as fans get older and you know we price people out and otherwise i mean yankee stadium i don't know if you remember when they launched but the tickets behind home plate I think they were twenty five hundred dollars a game.
0: Yeah.
1: Start multiplying that by an eighty one seat season ticket, and I think the Yankees were requiring people to buy get a minimum of four. I mean, do the math on that pretty quickly, and it's pretty eye watering. Uh, yeah. And that's why those seats were empty all the time, and that makes for bad television and bad atmosphere, and you know the players thrive off that and things like that. I mean, yeah. For me, uh, you know, I think you know maybe you you're uh, you know doing this to try to be a bit um, you know fair, but what the red sox or fenway sports group have done to improve the you know all you know as i understand it tons of the seating has been changed upgraded removed i don't know about the bleachers you know they've added all these new sections in with much more comfy seats etc um because they wanted to keep uh, the intimacy the you know the beauty of that shape of ballpark and the tightness of the fans close to it um but obviously can't massively uh reduce the capacity or um, you know take out too many seats but they definitely looked to improve the quality of the seat and the quality of the in and outs they've added bathrooms and things like that so they have tried and i think yeah. done a pretty good job um, Wrigley the same way you know they've uh, worked with the council of the city there to you know make some of the sections bigger and larger so they could add in more toilets and you know equally they had to add in better players facilities as well because you know, the kind of struggle to get players at some points, um, partly because they have day games, but partly because you'd walk into their clubhouse and you'd find that there was a leak in your locker. Um, yeah. You know, that's just for a guy who's making $85 billion, uh, that's not really how he wants to rock, right? Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. But absolutely. I think,
1: you know, the, the issue is where you have those kind of multi purpose stadiums um, and recognizing that that just gave a really bad. Um, experience to the fans. I mean, you know, the twins were in the metrodome and while, you know, we there's no question that we were turning the AC on and off and blowing the fans um, in when our team was um, pitching and blowing it out when our team was hitting, um, you know, the, the stadium was a multi-purpose, really American football stadium and all the seats, even down near home plate faced the 50 yard line, which was beyond second base um so if you wanted to watch home plate you were constantly sitting at a funny angle and that's never good for comfort your back any of those other bits and pieces so to have to build a purpose-built stadium and the twins new stadiums you know target field is really really lovely i mean all the sight lines are great lots of hospitality things but unless you are keeping up with the times and offering you know great opportunities it's a bit like going to the cinema you know, the prices that they're charging now, the things that you, you know, want from your, you know, used to be, you just kind of go and get your popcorn and your large drink. And as long as it had a drink holder that fit your cup and you kind of, you know, bang down into your chair and it didn't creak as you moved, um, you'd eat your popcorn, watch your film and move on. Nowadays, you know, you want a super comfort seat. Maybe you want a love seat so the two of you can sit together. There better be enough leg room so that you don't have to move if someone comes out to go to the toilet, yeah. you know, it, service uh, i it's, it's the expectation from people is just so much higher and if the prices are getting to the point where they are um, you better offer a good product because otherwise people are gonna make different choices and yeah. you know one thing to spend you know eight bucks or ten bucks going to sit in the bleachers at Wrigley because there's something to be known for that um, although and I shouldn't say Wrigley because it's more expensive than that but you know say Cincinnati uh, you know, Tuesday afternoon game when they do a family special and you can get in for $8 each, um, you know, including a hot dog and a, you know, a Coke, um, you know, people have lesser ex- expectations. They're happy to bring their blanket to lay down on the, you know, the wooden seat. Um, but if you're spending 45 to $65 for a seat better be comfortable.
0: Yeah. And I think that expectation is something that, um, <clears throat> all of the, Various sports organisations around the the world, or especially in the UK, I'm going to have to look at. Um, just because we're times ticking on, I, just a quick, actually just a few quick questions on that. So outside of Anfield, because um, I presume that's your favourite stadium uh, in the UK at least. What's what's been your favourite ground to visit?
1: Well, the new Spurs stadium is unbelievably amazing. Um, but you know, otherwise it's. I, To me, it's about atmosphere. So, you know, Wolves is a great place to go. The atmosphere is really rocking. I mean, I I know they do all this kind of silly pyrotechnics beforehand, but after that, real fans. When we talked about Crystal Palace, that's a a total dump. But because it's so close to the pitch and, you know, the fans are good, that does it. I love going to Newcastle. Um, But, you know, look, I have a a friend who supports a non-league team called Hampton and Richmond Borough and I've traveled around, you know, seeing some games with him on, you know, when Liverpool have a Sunday game, we'll go off on a Saturday. I've started, I've stood in some dodgy places, um, you know, been rained on, bought burgers that probably, you know, hadn't passed any, any kind of health and safety, uh, you know, drank a few beers in a little clubhouse. Some of that stuff's just fun. It's about, you know, what you're looking for, but um, you know, realistically, you know, if you're going to stadiums nowadays, if they as I said before, they haven't been modernized or built in the last few years. They're not, you know, they they're very samey samey and it's hard to tell you what the difference is, whether it's uh, you know, Swansea or uh um, you know, somewhere similar. But you know, the bad stadiums are the ones you remember, you know, Everton, Bournemouth is not a great place to go, although there's only thirteen thousand people there, so um you know, at least you can park. Um but,
0: <laughs> Um, what about outside of um, what about outside of football? I mean, I I wrote a piece the other day. In fact, um, I think I might have mentioned in the piece that I wrote about you know uh, one of the events that that we uh, helped organise at Lords that I think you guys actually came to, which was about baseball and cricket um, yep. a while back. There are venues like that that are just so iconic um, that for me there you know there's an emotional attachment too to the kind of again the mythology of the place. Um, is there a place like that for you, not necessarily in baseball or cricket or whatever, but is there, is there a sporting venue that you have that kind of has a sort of degree of reverence that you'd like to point out?
1: I mean, uh, the difficulty with that is, is that so many of them are based on um, fans being in the stands. And working in sport, I've been to a, you know, when I was looking at trying to bring a game over to London or even to Europe, you know, I did a trawl of every large stadium, and you know they can be kind of soulless places without the fans in. Them. I, I, I have never had a bad day at Twickenham. I mean, despite yeah. the revolt. Um, I've had some terrible seats and had lots of beer spilled on me as people try to get. I am bruisers of people um, <laughs> who try to get through this tiny, tiny footprint of seats. Um, but otherwise, the atmosphere the enthusiasm, and the collective you know that's the the thing for me with football that I still kind of struggle with is while the passion is there, the fact that someone from another team gets then thrown out um just because they you know might have moved their hand to their head to you know show their enthusiasm for their team doing something well or screamed out something at the wrong time um you know in rugby, I've sat as an England fan in the heart of the South African section and been welcomed. Um, so it, it, to me, it's really much more about the kind of environment and, and um, passion, um, you know, the things around the stadium that make it interesting, accompanied by, of course, the significance of the event, right? So I've been to, you know, Privileged enough to have been to enough European championships and World Cups. And, you know, some of those who so have followed England around, and some of those I've just said, well, I've got this 10 days, so let me go and see England, and then I'll go see some other games. And, you know, when you go and see the Colombians play the, um, you know, the Costa Ricans or whatever it might be, you know, the fun, the enthusiasm, the kind of, you know, what those fan groups bring to it, you know, when you're going to see that, you know, any kind of Dutch you know, I went, I've i gone to see the Dutch women in field hockey and the number of fans and the orange wave and all the rest of it, it's just incredible. And so for a guy who doesn't really know, well, doesn't know really know much about field hockey, but obviously has, um, you know, interested in sports and has friends and, you know, gone off to things, to see that piece of um, theater in the stands, meant that suddenly what was going on on the pitch had so much greater significance.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually true because some of the some of the most memorable sporting events I've been to are kind of ones you go to by chance, you know, and you don't necessarily have the build-up to or, or it's slightly off the wall or somewhere unusual. I remember when I was in the Philippines, uh, and I only watched this on TV, but it was very close to uh, one of the, the college stadiums there. It was a basketball match between the two biggest universities in in Manila and my god I mean talk about rivalry and noise and all of this stuff it was just incredible to be around the venue and and all that thing and all that sort of stuff so I totally agree with you there uh unfortunately Clive we're running out of time but um there's one question which we ask all of our guests and I think I know the answer to this (laughs) but I'm going to ask you anyway and that what, what is your favorite type of dog
1: what is my favorite type of dog? Oh wow! So yeah, that's a pretty obvious answer. Um, so I won't even try to deflect away from this. So I've had a border terrier for the last hmm, ten or eleven years. Yeah, one named Gus, who was an amazing, amazing boy, and now I have Hugo, who's three years old. Um, and I just love the breed. So they're the right size. I you know I live in London, so you know it's not a gigantic dog. They're super loyal. They love people. You know, they got a bit of, you know, rough and tumble about them. Um, But at the same time, they just love a bit of, you know, affection and they're
0: massively loyal. And I mean, Oh, hello. I think we may have just lost Clive at the last knockings, the internet has let us down um looks like clive's gone anyway um it's been good having clive and i hope that for the hour or so that you heard him speak you enjoyed that um coming up with another cool guest later on this week just waiting to confirm the batting order of that so i won't uh, let you know who that is but i will do online um as always thanks for listening and uh, catch up with you next time